This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about the state election results for Victoria, as well as the implications for federal politics. Then, Stuart Kells joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders, which has been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Hi, I'm Kerry O'Brien and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Yes, you are. Thank you, Kerry. And uh, I thought it was very apt to have Kerry O'Brien do the lead into this segment, given that we are talking about politics. And, well, up until a few years ago, he was the staple of election night coverage on the ABC panel. And, uh, I mean, it was basically this very relaxing, comforting time when you saw Kerry talking there with Anthony Green at the screen. It always felt really good. So I just thought, you know, where did those days go, Ben? Hi, Amy. Hi. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Uh, very nice idea there from Kerry. Uh-huh. Yes. I was like, I'm not letting you go without this. Is that all right? He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, good get there, mate. Good get. Good <laughs> get. I jump in. Um, it's good to have you. And, uh, and also big shout out to the people who've brought in water when I was so um, much struggling. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Thank you to Casey Bonetto and Gemma for bringing in lots of water so that I will last the whole show. Um, But Ben, there's so much to discuss. Thank God I have the water because the Victorian election results on Saturday night stunned everyone, including the Labor Party. Yeah, well, um, I guess for anyone who has been living under a rock, uh, yes, Premier Daniel Andrews and the Labor government was returned with a thumping majority, an increased majority on Saturday night after a large swing towards the government, uh, delivered them a swag of extra seats, particularly in Melbourne's east, and consolidated their big majorities in a lot of their safe seats. Uh, So, I mean, a very, very strong result for the, the Labor government. Yeah, yes, and it's in this area which is re- referred to as the sand belt and has been really important in securing government for the previous multiple governments. Uh, but not only did the, the Labor Party secure this sand belt, which includes areas like Frankston, but there's also other areas that are not traditionally uh, Labor that they were in very, very strong contention for and it really has been coming down to the wire and essentially being tipped by postal votes and pre-polling. Well, it was pretty close to a landslide, Amy. I mean, Labor picked up seats across the board. Uh, They held all their safe seats in the west of Melbourne, in the regional cities like Geelong and Bendigo and Ballarat. Um, They held those important seats down towards Morty Alec, Bentley, uh, Frankston, all those seats they held. And then they made inroads into safe Liberal seats that nobody thought were vulnerable, seats like Box Hill. Uh, Mm. They won Box Hill. Yeah, Uh, they won. Uh, Mount Waverley is is very close, I believe, or or even um, gone over to Labor. At one stage, it looked as though Hawthorne and Brighton might even swing over to Labor. Unprecedented results. Those seats have come back in late counting, and I don't think that Labor will win them, but it shows you... It shouldn't be that close, though, Well, these are are blue-ribbon, leafy, affluent parts Mm. of Melbourne that have traditionally been extremely safe Liberal seats. Uh, So for, for the Liberals to go backwards in those seats, I think, shows you the scale of the... 
coalition's defeat. Yes, and you could see it on the face of John Pizzuto, who is the member for Hawthorne. Uh, whilst he was on the ABC panel, he was there because he was in a safe seat so that the awkward moment of you may lose your seat would have been avoided, usually. Yeah, well, that just shows you what a result it was. So, yeah. you know, I think a, a stunning repudiation of the Liberal Party's campaign tactics and messages under Matthew Guy, a repudiation of Guy's leadership, I think it has to be said, um, and, and I think a defeat of the Liberals' um, very strong law and order messaging. Mm. Um, voters showed that they, they, weren't that, they weren't that interested in crime and law and order. What they cared about... I think, was infrastructure and a government that was getting on with building things. And I think they also liked the progressiveness of Daniel Andrews' government. They liked the fact that it was quite a left-wing government, that it built schools and roads and hospitals. And, and I think it's a, it's a ringing endorsement of, of Andrews' politics. Exactly. And, um, well, there's not only the Liberal story, which is huge, um, but everyone was talking in the lead-up to this that uh, Labor may have to form a minority government agreement of some sort uh, with the Greens. That is far from the case. And the Greens were quite confident in some of the inner suburbs, such as uh, Northcote, which they won in the by-election when Fiona Richardson passed away. And um, they looked to have taken that back with Catch Theophanes, uh, the daughter of Theo Theophanes, and um, that's just one of those seats that the Greens uh, were contesting and that Labor thought, well, maybe it'll take a couple of elections to win back. Yeah, bad night for the Greens. There's no other way to put it. Uh, very disappointing result for the mm. minor party. Um, they lost about a 1% on their primary vote. Uh, they lost Northcote. Lydia Thorpe was defeated there, as you mentioned, by Kat Theophanis. Um, not a particularly well-known candidate compared to Lydia Thorpe's high profile in the electorate. Um, Brunswick, where they were expected to pick Brunswick up easily. Tim Reid is uh, neck and neck there, mm. so line ball there. Possibly may still win that, but uh, Labor is slightly ahead there in late counting. Uh, the city of Paran, where Sam Hibbins is currently the member, that's going to go down to preferences, and that's going to be... We're going to not know that for a week, at least, I don't think. Uh, but they're at risk of losing that, and it's been a wipeout in the upper house for the Greens. They've lost four... Look to have lost mm. four of their five upper house members. So Samantha Ratnam, at this stage, faces the prospect of being basically the only upper house Greens member. So um, a very poor result for the Greens, and, mm. and I think there'll need to be some serious soul-searching within the party about what went wrong. Of course, they ran a design disastrous campaign that was dogged by well rape allegations um some some very serious allegations about how the party was handling sexual harassment claims uh overshadowed by factional infighting in the new south wales branch um there were candidates in footscray for example that had made mm. uh, made pretty questionable statements earlier in their careers well um, essentially their lyrics were about date rape uh, that's that's correct, uh, I mean, uh, Mr. McAlpine over there in in Footscray. His his earlier lyrics as a rapper, um, slipping were, drugs into women's drinks and then raping them. Yeah, I, b I believe that is that is one of those lyrics. Um, I haven't looked into it particularly carefully. Um, I looked at the lyrics and I was shocked at that. I mean, you know, you can't. The the ex explanation was, oh well, he was engaged in toxic masculinity and he's now reformed. That may be the case, but it is, you know, surprising that anyone would think that that's kind of it's okay to condone a criminal 
things such as rape. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to um, some of the challenges of being a minor party and, and some of those challenges include the party organisation and vetting candidates properly. Uh, you know, the Greens have typically skated through with not a lot of scrutiny on some of their candidates in, in seats like Footscray where they're mm. not expected to, to, win. to win. So people don't take them too seriously and they don't look into the background of a lot of these candidates. Um in the Greens' defence, they also suffered from some pretty negative campaigning from Labor. So um, Labor definitely called out a lot of this stuff. And um, there was some pretty nasty negative anti-Greens campaigning running on social media, mm-hmm. um, which I think was quite effective and which the Greens had no answer to. So um, a few lessons to be learned there for them. Um, well, they don't have much of an answer today. I heard um, Samantha Ratnam on John Fain yesterday and she really was just not able to come up with an answer as to why they didn't really succeed except that she congratulated Daniel Andrews. Well, I I do think that is actually some of the explanation, which is that uh, with a very popular government uh, sustaining a swing towards it, it has actually uh, captured a lot of what might have been green voters, people who actually are quite left-wing voters who decided that they'd quite like Daniel Andrews, thanks very much. If they were going to vote for a progressive progressive party, they they thought, well, Labor was quite as progressive as the Greens. So um, the success of Labor in appealing to left-leaning voters, I think, has Mm. shaved a few percent off the Greens vote and that was enough certainly in seats like Brunswick and Northcote to make a difference. I also think the Greens need to do more work on policy. I don't think that they are yet there in a serious way presenting a big picture particularly socio-economic policy platform where they can go head-to-head with Labor on some of those big-picture issues. And I also think they need to refocus around the environment because they are still the only party that Mm. really focuses on environmental policy. And, look, one thing's for sure, neither major party are completely committed to the environment over the economy. The Greens are the only party that put the environment first and maybe that's a lesson for them is to go back to their to their roots, if you like, or stick to their knitting because, uh, look, the environment is a massive problem. Well, it's where you know? we live. Like, it's, it's where we if live. If we don't have the environment, we don't have an economy. Yeah, look, the planet so. is heating up. Um, Labor is logging in old-growth forests in Melbourne's catchment. Yeah. Um, you know, Labor governments elsewhere in Australia are approving massive coal mines. You know, there's plenty of things for the Greens to highlight. Um, exactly. So, you know, I don't think this is terminal for the Greens. I think in four years' time it will be very different. Well, hopefully it's just a wake-up call and that people can reset. Every party can have a bit of a, a self-reflection time. Well, you know, if there's one party that needs some self-reflection, it's the Liberal Party after Saturday night's results. So let's well, it didn't talk- look like they were going to. Did you see Josh Frydenberg come on the ABC panel after that result? Yes, I mean, I mean, Frydenberg to. You have to feel sorry for someone like Frydenberg going out to try and defend the party after a loss like that. I mean, that was. Uh, there's not much you can say after a, yeah, a stinging. But it's not a very good look to basically. You know, what Pursuto was doing was something that was very gracious, which was saying, we hear you, we respect, you know, your decision, and, and the voters are always right. You should never question whether the voters are right or wrong. And Frydenberg wasn't really admitting that there was any real problem with the Liberal Party that needed to be really looked at or reflected on based on the resounding message they received. Yeah, I mean, look, Frydenberg. 
Bloomberg might be in trouble in his own seat of Kuyong if those kind of swings are repeated in a federal election. So I mm. think Frydenberg does need to take note of what's going on here. And what's going on here is the Liberal base actually sloughing off and voting for Labor, and that must be extremely Huge. concerning for the yeah. Liberals. So if you've got people in these affluent seats who are, you know, generally doing pretty well socioeconomically, um, and if they are saying to Liberal candidates, uh, we don't want to vote for you because uh, of your climate policy mm. or whether it's because we think you're quite nasty and anti-immigration and we don't agree with your negative campaigning or whether it's simply that they're sick of the Liberal Muppet show, to use Scott Morrison's terms, you know, the endless leadership instability and the factional infighting, there are plenty of reasons to be a little bit upset or cheesed off of the Liberal Party in 2018. Yep. And they're also not reflecting the centre. They're being more and more drawn to the extreme right of their um, ideology, the conservative wing. You know, the Liberal Party, as they say, has always been a broad church, but this uh, this constant playing to ideology around, for example, um, the safe schools debate. We've seen people still hung up on same-sex marriage, not moving on, climate change and emissions. Like there are some really core topics that everyone feels like we've moved on. That's not, that's a non-issue. Stop politicising it. The safe injecting rooms and that last ditch bid by Matthew Guy to say, I'm going to shut it down on Monday. I mean, this is just... It defies evidence in terms of policy making, and I think that is what is very convincing to people who were Liberal voters who are now Labor because they're saying, well, I just want you to do what you say and actually be, like, rational. Yeah, I think you've hit the the nail on the head there, Amy. Uh, the Liberal Party, particularly the modern Liberal Party, has moved a fair way to the right of its traditional space in the centre or the centre-right of Australian politics. Uh, and particularly the Victorian Liberal Party, which is the home of Alfred Deakin, of mm. Robert Menzies, of uh, Dick Hamer, some of these fairly moderate uh, small-L liberal, small-C conservatives, uh, people who were not kind of... Uh, you know, moral crusaders, uh, people who very much governed from the centre and believed in governing for, you know, the, the so-called forgotten people of Menzies, uh, the small business people, the, the the families, the little people. The Liberal Party in, in 2018 seems to have moved a long way away from that historical background. It, it's hard to find a small L Liberal in the Liberal Party these days. Very. Um, and if you I look could at... could name them on one hand. Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, ironically, um, someone like Tim Wilson... Um, it's one of the few that that is, is still around, really, um, and you know this is a this is actually a long term thing that's been going on since mm. at least the Howard years. Um, the moderates have been purged by increasingly well organised conservatives within the Liberal Party apparatus, yep. and the whole Liberal Party has dragged has been dragged by this this right right faction to the right, and mm. and it's now I think got to the point where it's dragged the Liberal Party away from the centre of politics where it needs to be able to campaign in order to, to win elections. So, yeah, I mean, shutting down the safe injecting room is a good example. I mean, um, 20, 30 years ago, I think that kind of politics played a lot better. But these days, I think people are smart enough to realise that whether you agree with 
safe injecting rooms or not, the evidence seems to show that it saves lives. So, um, you know, why would you shut down something like that? Uh, particularly when the local community itself was the one that really campaigned for that room to happen because they were sick of people dropping dead on their front porches. So, yes. you know, th- things like that I think are symbolic of, of uh, a broader problem in the Liberal Party. And, and it is an existential crisis, I think, because, uh, you know, if you take the issue of climate change, this is a massive issue facing the future of Australia. The government, it, neither the federal nor, nor the state Liberal Party can come up with a policy on it. And they've been completely captured by the right wing of the party to the point where they can't even talk about climate change anymore they cannot actually have a rational discussion of it without tearing each other tearing into each other and without the sort of internal divisions coming right out it's become a kind of talismanic emblematic issue for the liberal party um and you're right the rest of australia just wants something done yeah, I don't think that's much to ask, given that's the whole role of government. Um, I don't know what else they're being paid for if they're not getting things done. Uh, but, Ben, let's talk a little bit about the fact that, um, well, there are some minor parties who have done poorly out of this, particularly in the upper house, where we've seen um, uh, preference deals getting done behind the scenes again, as is happens every every single time. Um, but you know, some of those really socially progressive reforms, like safe injecting rooms, um, some of that can be attributed to parties like Fiona Patton and the Reason Party. And Fiona Patton looks unlikely to regain her seat in the upper house. That's one um, really big change, and and that means that the balance of power is going to be held by a couple of other parties in terms of the votes the government needs to be able to pass its legislation. And one of those is the Darren Hinch Justice Party, which seems to have done the best out of this. Yeah, I should caution everyone about the upper house results in in the Victorian election because we won't know the actual upper house results for some time now. A couple of weeks. Um, So on the ABC website, they've got an election calculator that models the upper house, but that is not the upper house vote. And I think quite a few... No, it's not reflective of that. It's reflective of preferencing. That's right. I think it's so. A lot of people have been confused by that and just assumed that the results are in... Uh, that's not the case. We don't know exactly what the composition of the upper house will be yet. And the, one of the reasons for that is there's been an awful lot of below-the-line voting um, on Saturday. So, so thank you, listeners, for voting below the line. That's right. So Good the, work. Those ballot papers have to be counted by hand. They literally have to be entered yeah. into the computer uh, preference by preference. And that's why we won't know what the upper house is for a while now. But, yes, it looks as though um, it'll be a very different upper house. The Greens look to have lost... Uh, a number of their upper house members um, and the beneficiary look to be right-wing minor parties including the Hinch party, mm. uh, Darren Hinch's Justice Party and also some of these uh, kind of no-name um, start-up parties like the Transport Matters Party, uh, a party started by disgruntled taxi drivers uh, and also potentially the Aussie Butler Party might get a <laughs> member up somewhere or other. So um, uh it's too early to tell, basically, um, but it does look as though Fiona Patton has lost her seat, uh, mm-hmm. and so um, th- that will wipe out the Reason Party's representation. Yes, they're gone. Yep, yep. yep. So, and they were running a lot of candidates. Yeah, they were, um, and they had a couple of strong showings. I, I believe Elizabeth Devaney got um, a re- uh, Catherine Devaney. Catherine sorry, Devaney, Catherine Devaney yep. got a reasonable. Um, 
a in vote Brunswick. in Brunswick. Um, ironically, that may well have uh, been the difference between Labor and the Greens, that preference deal there. Um, mm. So um, what sort of upper house will it be? I think it'll be one where Labor will be reasonably able to control it because Labor will have nearly a majority. They'll probably have 18 or 19 out of the 40. So Labor will be able to strike probably fairly fairly individual deals and, and just do a few cross benches at a time rather than needing the yeah. negotiation of the entire cross bench to pass legislation. Um, Daniel Andrews has also mentioned that he would look to uh, reform the upper house and to maybe get rid of this group ticket voting, which has been such a, uh, a problem in terms of minor parties cross-preferencing each other and Glenn Drury getting involved in all of that kind of stuff. So I'd, mm. I'm happy if that happens, actually. I think that would be a good reform. Yeah, well, the vote should, you know, the actual outcome should reflect the vote. Well, Which yes, we'd hope that that would chose. be the case. Yes, that, that would be a good democratic reform. Wouldn't it? So, yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that the upper house at the moment reflects like the old rules of the Senate before mm. the Senate was reformed before the last election and it allows parties to do their own preferencing and send their preferences where they choose rather than for voters to choose. So um, I think it would be good to see it reformed along the lines of the Senate. Yeah, it would. Um, and the one thing that Daniel Andrews uh, made a point of in his victory speech was to say this is the most progressive government in the country and it's the most progressive state government as well. Yes, and I, and I think those lines seem to they seem to really resonate. I think, and you see that all the election reports, all the journalists picked up on those lines because I think they really did sort of stand for uh, what Andrews has achieved over the last four years. It has been a very socially progressive government. Mm. It has been a government that's been really kind of old school social democratic in its its socioeconomic policies. You know, building things, um, new schools, new roads, new hospitals. Yeah, not um, waiting for the market to do something. No, no. I mean, they, they have had some neoliberal policies around public housing. Um, mm. So, but but in general, it's been a kind of old-fashioned Labor government. And it, I think there's some lessons for some other Labor parties around the country there that voters seem to really respond to that, at least in Victoria. Whether that's the case up in some of the northern states um, mm. remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, I think one of the really interesting things too has been the reaction from uh, other Liberals and from the Conservative uh, side of the media. They're frankly at a loss. They can't understand what's happened. Um, if you will happen to be watching Sky News, over the last couple of days. Um, <laughs> not that I would recommend that. It's been there's been some unhinging, not to put it too mildly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Liberal Party didn't go right wing enough. Yes, that's actually Amazing. Been, that's been an actual take from a number of commentators that the Matthew guy was not conservative enough, not right wing enough, uh, didn't campaign enough on law and order, which is I think quite a remarkable analysis. <laughs> it is. I <laughs> but, don't know uh, there how you, go. you possibly got that message. <laughs> but I think this underlines the challenge for the Liberal Party, which is that there are parts of the Liberal Party uh, that are essentially maximalists, if you like. Mm. They are not going to settle for any kind of compromise uh, and any kind of centrism at all. And so it's going to be, there's going to have to be um, a faction in the Liberal Party that's going to have to take on this challenge and, and fight to drag Liberal Party back towards the centre. Mm. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to, it's going to take years, I think. Yeah. And um, I, I'd like to just briefly 
mentioned the independents, um, the independent women particularly, who have, have done an excellent uh, job in the country areas. And we're seeing not only an independent retain her seat in um, the country, but also a couple have a real chance of winning. Yes, um, so um, a couple of very strong showings uh, for regional independent candidates in the election, including in the seat of Mildura, um, a safe national seat, where it looks as though Ali Cupper, uh, who's a, a young... Uh, I think she's a councillor up there in Mildura. Yeah, she's a deputy mayor. Deputy mayor, there you go. Um, yep. She's run a very strong independent campaign and looks to be... Um, looks to look, looks like she's going to win. Mm. Um, she's going to unseat Peter Crisp, who's uh, the Nationals member up there. He's the Nationals whip, and he's been the member there since 2006. So that's a very strong result um, and uh, shows, I think, um, what, you know, that independents, particularly in regional electorates, um, still have a strong cachet. Um, in Benambra, there's a, there's a very interesting four-way race underway in Benambra between... Um, Labor, the Nationals, and a couple of independents, and that's yep. too close to call. Uh, and um, who else was it that you mentioned? Um, Susanna Sheed oh, yes. in Shepparton. In Shepparton, yep. yes. So she looks like she's been re-elected too. So mm. um, I think this is kind of continuing a trend that's been evident for a while now. Uh, some of these candidates have taken their cue from Cathy McGowan in the federal seat of Indi um, with running, you know, basically very regional, very... Um, not progressive per se, not progressive in the left-wing sense, but a little bit more modern and a bit more socially aware and, and very much focused on regional issues and saying to voters, we can represent this electorate and we can deliver things that the nationals can't. Yeah. And, and they've been pretty successful, actually, taking seats off, um, rusted on nationals members. And rusted on liberal seats like federally in Wentworth. And we saw yesterday Karen well, Phelps yeah. arrive. Oh, well, good segue. Um, that was my yeah. segue. Yeah, you yeah, can't good. ruin it, Ben. Sorry, mate. Yeah, Don't yeah. stop me now. <laughs> because we saw Karen introduced by Kathy McGowan. They kind of they meant to kind of like drag the parliamentarian to the floor. Oh, yes, yes. It's not really what actually happens. And uh, and also Rebecca Sharkey. And they brought her to the floor. She sworn sworn in. But as soon as she, um, she appeared to be getting sworn in, we saw Morris Scott Morrison leave the chamber and we basically had no Liberals left and uh, I guess it was a little bit of a sign of things to come, which was we're not really very impressed. Well, yes, the, so the Liberals still smarting from that Wentworth by-election defeat. Yes. A devastating defeat, really, to lose that seat. Yes, um, the seat welcome vacated to... vacated by Malcolm Turnbull, which uh-huh, just make uh-huh. obvious again. Yes, uh, so welcome to Parliament. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting moment, obviously, for, for the new member for Wentworth, Karen Phelps, to, to join. Uh, and she wasted no time, actually, introducing a bill for a federal national integrity commission, uh, which the government then was forced to wave through because it looked as though one of their members would cross the floor. So to basically to avoid losing a vote, they, they waved through a motion saying that they supported a national integrity commission. And that led to a very interesting question time where Labor then peppered the government with questions mm. saying, OK, if you believe in a national integrity commission, when's it happening? Yeah. Are you going to put any funding towards it? What's it going to look like? Uh, you know, when can we see the legislation? Um, and that forced the government to backpedal pretty quickly saying, oh, well, actually, they don't really believe in a, in a federal ICAC anymore, actually. So... 
Uh, so they just voted... Government at sixes and sevens, as we've seen throughout yeah. the Morrison administration. It was revealed today in a pretty good scoop by, I think, both the Financial Review and the ABC that there was a, a pretty firm plan on the books for one of these uh, corruption commissions under Malcolm Turnbull, and then that was torpedoed after Turnbull quit... Well, after Turnbull was rolled as leader and mm. then quit politics. So, you know, it just shows, I think, the policy chaos under, under Morrison... Well, that's, that's exactly right. It is chaotic. It is. It is totally chaotic yeah, at the and, moment. And Labor sim- seemingly looks not not chaotic at all because they uh, released in the very few last days of that state election campaign. This is federal Labor released uh, part of their energy policy, which is essentially modelled on and is basically based on the National Energy Guarantee or the NEG, which uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg had put through their party room multiple times, had received decent support from the party room, except for on the conservative side. That's another highlight of the divisions within the Liberal Party. But that just goes to show that Labor there being very politically savvy in essentially uh, <laughs> bringing back from the dead one of the Liberals' own policies. Yes, that's right. Um, maybe we can talk about this next week in a bit of detail because I'm highly critical of mm. Labor's new energy policy. I, I'm actually... I think it's quite a poor policy and I'm disappointed in Labor in what they've introduced there. So, um, Well, the ma- NEG wasn't necessarily very rigorous to begin with the based was, on the modelling it That's right. The, ne- the NEG was a fourth best policy. It was, it was very poorly structured. It was... A much worse policy than a carbon price or simply an economy-wide carbon regulation, which would have created a shadow price. So um, I think Labor's decided to adopt the NEG for a couple of reasons. Firstly, political expediency, to be able to beat the, the government over the head by saying, huh, we, well, we support your policy. Why won't you support your own policy? Um, which I think is the kind of too clever by half politics that often gets Labor into trouble. Um, there's also a genuine belief by Labor that they think that they can solve the climate wars by trying to get bipartisanship Mm. in energy policy I don't agree. I don't think there is any bipartisanship left to be even, discovered. There's not <laughs> so, even bipartisanship within the Liberal Party. It, there's there's <laughs> not two parties here. That's the problem, you see. Yeah. There's at least two Three, par- four. There's at least two main factions within the Liberal Party, one of which will never agree to any kind of climate policy. So I think Labor, in that respect, is a little bit deluded. Um, and, yeah, let, let's table that for next yeah. week because um, I'd like to go through the nitty-gritty of it. Um, I, I'm pretty disappointed in a lot of its ish, a lot of its measures, mm. um, it is only half an ounce. To be fair, yes. but um, some of the aspects of it, um, I think, um, are a worry. Um, for example, I'll just bring one up. There's nothing at all in there about coal exports. Mm. So there's nothing in Labor's policy to stop people from building new coal mines, which, as we know, is madness. So you know, that's just one one example. Yeah. Well, let's table that, as you said, and uh, we'll also table a discussion, a much longer discussion around the uh, announcements by Kelly O'Dwyer for paid parental leave and other things like superannuation for women. Yeah, absolutely. I'll look into that. I must admit that's kind of uh, flown under my radar as I've been busy with the Victorian election. (laughs) Don't worry. I read the document and uh, it's not that exciting. Well, it's exciting, but it's not it doesn't go far enough, not even close to far enough, and in some ways it's regressing. So um, I think that's something that's going to affect every um, person who's building a family and, you know, seeking to be working. Okay, I'll read up. So, yeah, let's do it. Yep.
energy and and uh, PPL. Great. Let's do some Done. policy. All right. We'll do that next week. Thank you so much, Ben, to uh, recap this Victorian state election and uh, talk a little bit about federal politics. Thanks, Amy. Always a pleasure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 RRR FM and it's my absolute delight and pleasure to have back in the studio author Stuart Kells who is joining me to discuss his one of his books... <laughs> As I said, there's a lot of them, and um, you should do yourself a favour and get all of them. Um, this one is uh, called The Library, A Catalogue of Wonders, and it's out through Text Publishing. has a very beautiful front cover, and uh, I welcome Stuart now. Hi. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's Great so good to, to have you. Um, when I saw your Shakespeare's Library, I went, ooh, Shakespeare. And you lovely, generous person gave me a book, so you're like number one in my eyes. Thank you, thank you. I should say that I don't have like a factory in the backyard sort of producing these. It Surprising. I had a couple of years off, um, sorry, a bit of time off about a couple of years ago when my younger daughter was born. So I had a really kind of mm. productive period where I ate lots and lots of cake and just wrote, 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 wrote. And I've been trawling that ever since. That's amazing that not only did you use that time very productively when often people kind of lose their minds and stare into space crazily <laughs> we, we with sleep, sleep deprivation. We weren't sleeping very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, it's impressive you managed that. Um, let's just quickly go over your background for those who are unaware because you know I was when you were introducing yourself in this book there were even some things I didn't know about you and your interests particularly your academic interests so how did you come to write about libraries and books and why libraries and books not that I think that's a weird thing because yeah. I would be doing the same thing if it was my choice. I've kind of been in and out of the book trade in all sorts of ways for a long time, like more than 20 years. So I worked uh, a couple of stints in publishing, including as a publishing assistant at Text Publishing, who's published uh, yep. the book now, um, about 18 years after I worked there. <laughs> um, and I've worked a little bit in academic publishing uh, and a lot of the library visits that I did were in um, my role as a bookseller and, and dealing in rare books, uh, which took me all sorts of different ways. And uh, I also um, dabble in my own publishing. And one of the things that I publish is a thing called Australian Book Collectors, which is a, a sort of series of biographical profiles of collectors of Australiana. And so all these things together... Uh, my academic work, yeah. my, my book dealing work and other things take me to all sorts of interesting places. And for this particular book, um, we were able to do a bit of a, a world tour of libraries last year and um, took the the one-year-old and the, the five-year-old... To a library? Took to, to, to dozens of libraries wow. around the world. Um, so we did a full lap um, so, um, to uh, Asia, Europe, the UK and about six cities in the US, mainly just visiting libraries. Um, oh, my God. So, what a um, dream. The, the one-year-old was completely oblivious to the whole thing. Yes. Uh, with a five-year-old, it was a life-changing experience. <laughs> and is the five-year-old now a bookworm? Yes, she is. She spends a lot of time on book tours and in libraries and at book auctions and bookshops. And that. Yeah, and she, t- yeah. she takes all that for granted. So that's yeah, great. Like it's, it's all part the, of her life. Yeah. 
and so I think she's learning a lot just by osmosis. Yeah. It's so important to be a reader early on and, you know, an avid reader, not just reading because you have to read. Totally. Yeah. So what were some of those libraries that were your absolute, if we go to this country, there's absolutely no way I'm missing this library because there are a few for me and I want to know what your list is. Well, Americans do libraries really well. So a few of the absolute highlights were there. This um, near, near the Capitol building in Washington, there's the Library of Congress, which is amazing just as a structure, mm. you know, in terms of library architecture as much as the books. But right near there is the Folger Shakespeare Library, which is like global head office for Shakespeare people like me. Um, <laughs> and it's a spectacular modern exterior and a very sort of faux Renaissance interior, beautiful mm. place. Um, and then not far from there, there's the Smithsonian and a few others. In New York, there's the wonderful New York Public Library, which which, which is probably the, the 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 grandfather of all public libraries. Yeah. But also right near there, walking distance is the Morgan Library, which is this you know banker's plaything, this absolutely sumptuous, um, incredible collection of first class manuscripts and and early printed books and things put together by J P Morgan. So there's a few there. Um, we went to some of the better libraries in in um, Boston and, and at Harvard, uh, including the Houghton uh, Library, which is the main rare books library of, of Harvard, and you can imagine the sort of stuff they've got. Um, the British Library, Lambeth Palace Library, which is to Anglicanism what the Vatican Library is to Catholicism. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, so that was a magical place. Um, the Bodleian at, at Oxford uh, blew our minds. Um, this wonderful little uh, Swiss Valley, uh, not far from Zurich, houses uh, an incredible Baroque library called the the um, Abbey Library of St Gall, uh, which was founded uh, in uh, the Dark Ages mm. by a, a, um, a party of Irish monks in Switzerland. So, and this know, was that one is featured in the book. Mm, so, so many layers of history behind these libraries. Yeah, and we've recently toured some major Japanese libraries as well, and the Japanese do libraries as well and then the Japanese libraries tell a very poignant and multifaceted story you can imagine I wonder what a Japanese library looks like in terms of you know just how ordered and neat they seem to be in every <laughs> way definitely with manuscripts and books that's right yeah there's, there's, there's a, definitely a precision there there is well I, there was also a precision when I went to the National Library in Canberra mm-hmm Amazing. Yes, I love the NLA, and NLA. It, it's it's a, it's st- such an amazing resource for us. And that Hugely, that row yeah. of institutions having the, the National Gallery, the Portrait Gallery, the the NLA all together, um, and yeah, it's a pretty special. It's precinct. a dream. It is. Yeah. It's like it's like a dream space and beautiful modernist buildings and well funded collections. Yes, I, I actually stayed in that precinct when I was in Canberra a week ago, and it was just heaven because out your back door is everything. Yeah. Thing you could want in Canberra, and in between it's bushland with yeah. you know cockatoos. And it's, exactly, it's really special and beautiful rose gardens at the old Parliament House, yes. which I've spent ages photographing and Instagramming. But that's another matter. Um, but one of the things that I'm very interested in, um, before we get into the history of this, but just in terms of libraries and the way that they function mm. this in this day and age because they have such valuable contents particularly in the special collections the manuscripts the rare books i mean they have special reading rooms for different topics sometimes mm. um 
you know, what are the types of restrictions that some people might face? Like I know in Oxford, um, you know, you need to be, you register before you can even Mm. enter that library. The British library is the same, yeah. Um, Well, there's all sorts of different layers of, of, of access, um, li- libraries and librarians like people using their books and if, yes. if you can kind of convey your your seriousness they generally will say yes uh, the, the days when um, you went and asked for erotic books and they would say are you a policeman or a psychiatrist and you'd say <laughs> no and they'd say well no you can't see them, those days are over um, and also we're moving away from the white gloves thing, there's been a really strong movement among um, rare book librarians to say that the white gloves thing was a mistake mm, uh, for a bunch of different reasons um, and a certain amount of, of handling is, is good, um, but also digitisation has been an incredible boon for access to rare books um, it's still important to see and handle the real thing occasionally, but being able to look at high quality scans so the Vatican Library, uh, a lot of major UK and US libraries and other libraries around the world are, are rapidly digitising their collections so mm. that you can actually look at texts in ways that you couldn't have even even, even um, couldn't have even five years ago. Yeah, and well one of the things that you talk about in the book is serendipity mm. and how important that is to libraries. I mean that's really what I think is the most obvious and exciting feature of going to a library is the serendipity of finding something you weren't even looking for that in fact adds huge amounts to whatever you're mm. interested in or researching it's a, it's kind of like a, a detective you know thriller when you're looking through these folders and finding all the looking touching these primary documents where you know major figures in history have written mm. and and there's just so many i guess things that even researchers would never have pursued had they not accidentally found something and there's really a, like a whole chapter on accidental mm. findings and things that were thought to be lost that were then found in your in libraries yes yes there's something very different about physically browsing in a library versus browsing online and and the the act of looking in archives and looking on shelves um, it, it's a way of allowing the magic of the universe to reveal itself. You know, the universe mm. speaks to you through serendipity and says, you know, what about this or have you thought of this? Um, and so things hide in libraries, even though they're catalogued and even though they're curated, things hide in libraries and things reveal themselves um, to people who look through libraries. And, yeah, there's been some wonderful discoveries over the years, you know, lost lost manuscripts and, and lost letters and, um, you know, un- unregarded things that open up all sorts of interesting um, possibilities when they're rediscovered. Yeah, something was found under a chair in the Vatican Library, mm, I believe. A very important letter. Yeah. Yes. Relating to Henry VIII, I think. From I memory. think it was, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just insane to think that no one looked under the chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, my theory is that someone might have sort of put it under there, so yeah. either to get it later or to say, no, I don't like this in the collection. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like putting a shoe on it. <laughs> well, Henry VIII was a very controversial figure, wasn't he? Mm, he broke the very Catholic spectacularly church. with the church. Yeah, for his many wives that were obviously not all at once, but in succession. And things fall down between shelves and and behind books as well. Yeah. And, yeah, that's part, part of the fun. And there's a whole area of bibliography now of, of recovering old um, manuscripts and early printed books that were used as waste 
in bindings of newer books. So a lot of books, say, in the 17th and 18th century were bound um, using earlier paper and parchment in the covers. And so, for example, if you look at the Bodleian copy of the Shakespeare First Folio, inside the the front um, board, the upper board, there's text from a uh, an incunabulum from a, one of the earliest printed books. So that copy is multiple things. It's mm. not just Shakespeare's printed text from 1623. It's actually, yeah, you know, text from more than a century earlier. And, you know, that, those sort of aspects of, you know, rediscovery and understanding provenance and understanding book production, that's a huge area now. Yeah. Well, I was surprised at, at book production and you take us through the evolution of the form, like the physical form of a book. Um, which comes, well, at the beginning, it's about the fact it had no physical form in some ways. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about the uh, Aboriginal Australians who have oral histories, who pass their history down, and um, their history was really, I guess, colonised in a way by some white Australians travelling here and, um, and you know, they sought to put down all of their practices, cultural practices in books. One such book was taken off the shelves because of the fact that it really um, was disrespectful Mm. of Indigenous culture. Um, So there's that element. And then there's the tablets, the kind of stone that is quite literally etched, um, you know, in the very, very early times. And then we go into um, various forms of... Uh, parchment and scrolls and um, it, that sound papyrus sounded like a very very <laughs> massive Uns- pain un- in the butt unsatisfactory yes. <laughs> it, well it, it, it doesn't last as mm. you said in the book um, it had a shelf life which is a bit of a concern yeah it's very brittle you can really only kind of um, uh, use uh, apply ink on one side um, and they're very impractical to yeah. use I mean if it's sort of um, you know 10 feet long trying to scroll from one bit to the to the other there's no ability of having an index or you know page numbers and those sorts of things so it's, no. it's an impractical format um but also it's um you know very brittle and and also there were problems in supply with supply of papyrus because obviously it's a very particular kind of plant uh, grown in a particular area uh, and so it was easy enough to monopolize the 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 sale of papyrus and so that led to people using things like animal skins and ultimately um, real paper Mm. and then that in itself led to a a flowering of of literary output particularly in the um in the the 16th and 17th centuries when you had reliable supplies of paper and high quality paper with um you know cotton rags yes um well let's quickly talk about papyrus before we get to parchment um, because I just wanted to mention one thing which I found fascinating which was how these scrolls and the content in these scrolls were copied and distributed and in some ways um, stolen Mm. uh, by various libraries and conquerors who you know wanted the world's knowledge for themselves and in Alexandria um, they seemed to essentially take the original copy it out and then give the copy back to the person (laughs) that they took it from. Mm, That's a little bit disingenuous. Yeah, it was kind of like a a precursor to that sort of legal deposit scheme but yeah with a very aggressive sort of bent to it that if you showed up in in ships and you had uh, manuscripts aboard then they would take the manuscripts copy them 
and send you back the copies. Uh, and so the, the other countries and other cities got wind of this, and so they would stake a big bounty and say, you know, uh, like a, like a deposit. A deposit, yeah. Yeah, literally. And um, you could only borrow the books. And even then, the, the Library of Alexandria would still keep them and, and sacrifice the bond. Um and there, there were those Amazing. sorts of things going on. And then there was all these wonderful scams surrounding the library where people sort of squirrelling um, books out to be copied. Yeah. But also um, people trying to sell things to the library because it had such a voracious appetite. It had this ambition of essentially capturing all of the world's texts mm. and all of the texts from the, the greater uh, you know, Alexandrine Empire. People could sell these fake you know, um, sort of philosophical treatises and things that had all sorts of, you know, semi-plausible-sounding um, titles. Yeah. And, and there was an industry in doing that. And it took, you know, literally a thousand years to, to unpick what was real, real and what was fake <laughs> in these you know, old Greek, you know, treatises and things. Well, that's why you can't trust those histories of Greek times and mm. Roman times because you actually go, well, where did they get the information from? Yes, that's right, and half of it was made up. And yeah. I think that's fascinating in itself, that history of bibliocrimes and bibliofraud going right back to the very, very first books. And, in fact, the very, very, very first books were in part designed to prevent fraud because they were about accounting for, you know, um, taxes and, and um, you know, grain storages and things like yeah. that. So there's, there's always been this kind of relationship between books and, and uh, fraud. Yes, and... Well, interestingly, maybe karma came around because the library was destroyed, mm. um, which is tragic. Uh, I'm sure the papyrus would have died anyway at some point. But yeah, you say that in Greek drama alone, there were massive losses yes. that you know we can't be recovered. Yes. Some of which were found later on in other libraries where people have copied the copy of the copy. Um, but you know, there are many by, uh, for example, Euripides and Sophocles. So many things that have been lost in time essentially that we'll, mm. we'll never get back that we have no idea what the contents are apart from sometimes second-hand accounts of these plays or um, the performances of the plays yes that's right and it really sh sort of demonstrates that um, preservation and conservation function of libraries um, i think it was petrosky that said libraries are, and, and their contents are the basic data of civilization and imagine what it would be like if we had have lost even more of the the greek plays and even more of you know what if we, what if we had lost homer or um you know gilgamesh um so these libraries over, over the years have fought against things like uh, decay mm. uh, with with the papyrus scrolls uh, deteriorating. Um, they've 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 been subject to invasion and fire and, and all sorts of things. So what we have now has come through this incredible process of, of discovery, uh, which makes it even more precious. Yes. Well, it, the the books tell us who we are, and they're an invaluable resource for historians mm. to help make sense of the past and our mistakes and the things we may have gotten right. Yes, and and there's a, there's a sort of an arc uh, through this um, through this book about how value books books and libraries are really valued in classical times, and then there was this great forgetting of the value of libraries in in the dark ages, and then part of the Renaissance is that about that rediscovery of these classical texts and a rediscovery of the value of knowledge and of books, and possibly a waning um, more recently uh, of how we appreciate rare books um, and how we appreciate this content. Yes, and uh, there's one thing um, that 
is really great about this book is that you intersperse your chapters with a couple of pages of hilarious, I guess, reflections on books and interesting people, some very interesting people and their behaviours People who took book love books. to a whole new level. Yeah, I, I could say that some of it was resonating <laughs> and I was a little bit concerned when I started reflecting on my own behaviour. Um, but one of them, I just there's so many lines that you write that are just so true. Like when you say it, it just kills me. You said, books will sleep with you. <laughs> and they don't argue. No, thank God, yeah. <laughs> They're, they're excellent, tender, tender lovers. I love that um, story. The, the, the Jeanette Winterson yes. hiding the books under, under her, her bed, ma- bed mattress. And the, the, and the standard-sized penguins under a standard-sized mattress and, and, you know, gradually the mattress is rising. Rising, and yeah. The, sort of uh, stepmother discovers them and, and the rest is history. It's so tragic mm. that she had to hide them mm. like that and then they're just, well, taken mm. abruptly. Yes. Um, and but, but it's that intimate connection between people. Is. And, and I mean, often people will read in bed, so it's not that far removed from reality to mm. assume that they'll be close by. Totally. Um, on a bedside table, perhaps. Mm. You know, sometimes I have my absolute all-time favourites next to me um, just in case I really need to check something. Which but, is really but that's important. really interesting because you put a lot of yourself into your books. You, mm. know, you look at your, your own shelf of books and they speak back to you about where you've been and what you've thought. And, you know, I love that idea. I, I visit a lot of personal libraries, a lot of private libraries, and you can really read a lot about person. a person just by seeing their books, not just how, very private. how straight they are, yeah. <laughs> whether they're, you know, tidy or whether they're messy. Yeah. But, yeah, how... Um, how you know what, whether it's got Carlos Castaneda in it or Eric von Daniken or you know it reveals a it lot. It reveals, yeah. <laughs> I know that's why I, I'm. Sometimes I feel like if anyone looks at my bookshelves, they'll know who I am. Yeah, that's the risk. Yeah. So you need to do the backward thing of having just the spot, <laughs> just the sort of foredge out because that's that's very fashionable. As well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I'm I'm way too transparent <laughs> with my books at the moment. Um, but anyway, I'm. That's another story altogether. But uh, one of the things that is great about this as well is the not only the fact that you're tracking interesting behaviours, but also, I guess, trends over history as to how people have interacted with books, not mm. only sleeping with them or beside them or, you know, around them uh, or over them, on top of them, um, but also, you know, the fact that bibliophiles and I'm by saying by saying bibliophiles, I mean people who are very very passionate about books, collecting books, reading books, you know, being around books. Um, bibliophiles are much maligned. I mean, mm, they've been getting totally. a really bad rap, and I think particularly parents have been horrible to bibliophiles over history. <laughs> And spouses. And spouses, yeah. <laughs> Anyone close who wants to, like, walk around their house or use their kitchen without bumping into a stack of books. There was I that, think that's fair, though, that, you know, books don't just reside in studies, do they? There was that story of the um, the, the great uh, 19th century collector who was sort of filling his house. Every yes. room in his house was just growing. And, and the next-door neighbour said to the man's wife, don't let him put any books in the kitchen, even on a small shelf, yeah. because they will grow from there and take over the whole, the whole room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and do they? Do yeah. you put yours in the kitchen? Yes. Yeah, I my, do. my pretty much every room. Yeah. 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 I actually don't really use my kitchen. It's more of a library. 
than a kitchen. Yeah, as long as it's not damp, that's fine. No, no, no. No, it's actually the most dry room in the house. That's probably why I put them there. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I do most of my writing in the kitchen. Do you? Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, well, or, I guess easy access to food and coffee. Yeah, exactly. Fridge is right behind me, yeah. look, looking out a window, sitting at the kitchen table. Pretty much everything I've written, I've written at the kitchen table. Oh, I, that's interesting. Now I've got that picture in my mind, I'm going to read this differently. Except for where there's errors, and that's usually because I'm sitting on the floor of a hotel room <laughs> about to go somewhere to take a plane to a library or something, and I'm quickly scribbling something from memory. Yeah. I'd never make mistakes, touch wood, at the kitchen table, but I always make mistakes when I'm writing things sitting on the hotel Noted. room floor. I haven't found a mistake yet, um, you know, with my highly closely <laughs> closely read um, notes here. But I, one of the things that's great is, are the types of insults that bibliophiles get because there are some insults like... Well, you just collect these books. You don't actually read them. You know, you think that you're smart, but you're really just a fool or, or someone who wants to appear smart mm. to others by collecting knowledge that you won't actually consume. There's nothing worse than when you've got a big library and someone comes in and says, so, have, have you, you read, read all this? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. How many years have you got? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it also, it's, there's, there's so many different levels of misunderstanding there too. Yes. Because a large number of my books are there because they're interesting historical objects, like mm. they're 1940s pulp sci-fi, and they've got very fragile, you know, glued spines. You're not going to sit there and read them page by page. If you want to read a 1940s sci-fi classic, buy a new paperback yeah. or get the ebook or something like that. You know, these are essentially they're on the shelf for conservation mm. reasons. And the same way I've got, you know, 16th century you know, histories and, you know, papal um, declarations, etc. I'm not going to sit there and just sort of read it page to page. It's not that kind of book. It's there because it's essentially being conserved and, and being enjoyed as a, as a physical object. Mm. Obviously, lots of things there are to be read and lots of non-fiction books are there to be dipped into. But this idea that you've got all these books and you've read every one of them cover to cover, it's just, it's a silly... It's a farce. Well, the, it's really... It's, it's pressure that we don't need. <laughs> exactly. I've already got enough pressure of, like, how are you going to pack these again and move house? That's... Oh, oh. oh books and moving yeah. just don't mix. They I, don't. I think I'm going to try and never move again, I think. <laughs> it's really bad, I can say, from first-hand experience. Um, and... Also, I mean, they are my most precious possession. Like, if I had to say what is the most valuable thing I own, it's my books. Yeah. And it's partly because it's got you, they've got you it's in them. It's me, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're the story of your life. Carefully collected, curated. Everything's there for a reason. None of it is superfluous, I can tell you. Otherwise, I would have got rid of it. Yeah. So do you write your name or do you write notes in them? No. Oh, I would never deface a book. I, can, I don't understand anyone who could, like, even use pencil on a book. I've, I've got all sorts of horrible I foot, stories. No, I, I do like um, post-it notes, so I can put it. I can write on the post-it on top of the line where I want to make, some, you know, a comment or come back to something. But I would never write in it. I've got the the. I think I've written about this in the past. The lady who went to a local bookseller here, and she'd written her name in all of her books, and she asked the bookseller whether that was a problem, and the bookseller said, "Well, it probably would have been better if you hadn't done it." And <laughs> so she went home and she liquid papered out. <gasps> All of her names in all of the books. It's like so, it went from being a sort of a semi crime oh to being God. a you know abominable crime. Pretty much one of the worst book crimes <laughs> in, in the history of time. That's another wow. wonderful conversation on book Twitter, where librarians share these um, 
you know, um, shelf mark and and stamping crimes where you'll see this sort of beautiful 17th century title page with a wonderful engraving yeah. and then someone's put a stamp big library stamp right in the middle <gasps> of the engraving or, you know, and it's like, what were you thinking? Yeah, was it the intern? <laughs> yes. Who was it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the kid on summer holidays yeah. helping out mum or dad. Uh, librarians and libraries are getting much, much better at that. Thank and God. Particularly with you know the, the, the conservation of more modern books, but you know there's there's been some terrible crimes in the past. Massive crimes, and um, one of the crimes that's. I mean, it's galling. It kind of grabs you in the gut, really, to read about is the the type of people, and you talk about them in some some detail, who rip out pages, just go or or, or rip them in half and stick one in each pocket. There's that guy who goes to the um, railway bookstall as yes. an academic, and he buys the book, tears the cover off rips the book in half and puts one half in each pocket and the the poor bookseller's looking at him like, you've got to be crazy. And the guy says, well, it's the people who don't do this who are crazy because you're the ones who are sort of fetishising an object whereas all I care about is the content and this is an efficient way for me to get the content. And, you know, there's an element of truth in that. But one of the things that you end up with when you do that is a pretty scrappy library. Yeah, volume one and volume two. <laughs> and the half of the pages in between have just fallen, fallen out. out yeah. So Charles Darwin was a bit like that. He was very unsentimental about his books. And, you know, some of them, I think, were were um, clasped together with, you know, um, like clips. Metal clips, yeah. And uh, he would write. As he was reading, he would be in this conversation with the um, with the author. You know, this, this is great, this is terrible. Mm. And, you know, looking back on his library now, that's incredibly useful Valuable, because yeah. it's part of his thought process. And, and Oscar Wilde was the same. He, he wrote in books. Um, so those kinds of examples are very excu- excusable yeah. and incredibly useful. But... But generally, yeah, please don't tear your books out. Don't tear the pages out <laughs> and don't fold them over. Oh. Some people fold the page, like, in half on an angle yes. and I just go, no, no, no. Yeah, and no, the dog ears and that kind of stuff. I saw this wonderful little technique someone used recently where you just cut the corner off an envelope and then slip the corner over the corner of the page to function like a dog ear, but like a little temporary bookmark. It's so tidy oh and gosh. so zen. Yeah. So I recommend that. Yes, that's the most <laughs> unobtrusive way you could, I could think of, yeah. apart from like a regular bookmark. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just, just talking crazy. So now. boring. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just bought a magnetic bookmark of old Parliament House in the snow. Very cool. I'm very proud of it's, that. It's kitschy. Yeah, very kitsch. It looks beautiful though. Yeah, but uh, there's so many great ways that humans have loved books. Yes. And I mean love, like some of it has been quite amorous. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of book, book kissing going on over the years. Yeah, that's a good point you make. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk about book kissing? Um, it's a real thing, just in case anyone's <laughs> asking if that's like a, a euphemism for something else. Um, no, they, p- people really have kissed their books uh, in all sorts of different ways. Um, I don't recommend it if you've got a lot of lipstick Yes, uh, no. and and um, if you have to kiss your book, then obviously you know maybe stick to the outside. Um, but yeah, there's there's all sorts of interesting sort of examples of people, as you touched on before, people sleeping with their books, people embracing their books, people sleeping with books over the top of them. Um, 
but there's 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 a sort of a conservation dimension to that as well because uh, I touched on the idea of, of white gloves before and mm. people not wanting to touch books, but actually the the oils in your hands are wonderful for book um, conservation for book leather. So um, fondling your books occasionally <laughs> <laughs> is actually a really positive thing. Platonically, yes, that's right. People, you know, every, everyone, clothes on. Yes. Um, well, you you said at the beginning of the book. This is a direct quote. In some quarters, leather-bound books are out of fashion. They are brown books to go with brown furniture. Mm. I was like, well, I think I must have not got that memo. Yeah. well, I th- that- When did they get out of fashion? Oh, it was a few years ago. I think they've probably swung back. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's... You there's think about- cloth hardbacks, but this is like leather is another level. Yeah, totally. And, if honestly, if anyone wants to chuck out all of their beautiful old leather bindings, just give me a call. Yeah, Stuart's on Twitter. <laughs> Stuart Kells. Totally. Yep. He'll be at your door in, I don't know, uh, 18, half an hour. 18 microseconds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, the, you know, there, there are all sorts of fashions about these things. One of the things that really makes me kind of weep is um, people in, in second-hand bookshops and op shops get these sort of old paperbacks and the sort of 40s and 50s paperbacks. Mm. They'll pick them up and they'll say, oh, the forage is a bit brown, let's throw them out because no one will want to buy these because they're a bit kind of crusty. Whereas they are vastly more interesting and vastly more valuable than the paperback from 10 years ago, which still has a nice white forage, but which is obtainable everywhere. Mm. So please don't throw old paperbacks out just because they're a little bit browned. No, give them to your church fate or something like that. That is the best place to get random books. Totally. I I did the the, um, Abbotsford Convent book sale recently and found some awesome sort of pulps and things. So, yeah, totally. We know. Yeah. I have a yearly um, book fair in Drysdale. And it's just like a oh. true delight, a whole Nothing gym better. worth, like massive school gym full of books that yeah. people think are useless and I'm just like, oh, take that one. Yeah, and again, it's that serendipity. Yeah. Yeah, you're finding things you didn't even know you wanted. And I range across lots of different genres and lots of different periods, so I'm always going to find something interesting. Exactly. And and the people who don't do this are going, God, do people do this in their spare time? <laughs> yes, we do. I, kind of, I only do this in yeah. my spare time. <laughs> well, it's kind of more your job, Stuart, so I think you can get away with it, can't you? It's funny. I've, I've got all these poor um, people, like when I, I, I do a fair bit interstate and um, I do this sort of drive-by, like 10-minute trips into antique centres and, and bookshops where I'll just come in and say, quick, 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 I'm here. <laughs> and I'll buy the books and then I'm off. And it's like yeah. everyone still feels a little bit traumatized <laughs> that, that, that I've kind of been, but I walk away very happy. Yeah, it's not a very orderly exchange. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3 Triple R FM, and I'm with you up until noon today. I have been speaking with Stuart Kells, who is the author of The Library, a catalogue of wonders, and it is shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards in the non-fiction category. Um, there's also a history category in there, which is kind of weird to me that there are two separate categories, but it's good, I guess, for non-fiction, because non-fiction needs some more love, don't, yeah, doesn't it, Stuart? Totally. Non-fiction's hot. It is hot. Non-fiction's the new fiction. I've said that for years, but everyone just looks at me blankly like, 
Why are you buying that massive Churchill book that's going to be like a doorstop for someone else? Yeah, it's just much more fun. And it's actually, you know, it's much more satisfying to write because there's a certain yeah. you know, truthiness Real. It. <laughs> it's real. It really happened. Yeah. That's the part of, well, that's what this book is. It's just constantly going, I cannot believe this is real. Yeah, it's essentially just a collection of my sort of most... Yeah, like what stories that happened? Yeah, yeah, and, and trying to knit them together in, in a history, and it's you know that's that's fun. It is really fun. Um, you talk about some of the best and worst librarians, and I guess they're the peak library. If we're, library, if we're thinking about people and their relationship to books, they're mm. either absolutely all consumed by the books, whether they choose so or not, because there are some organisations such as the Baudelaire Library in Oxford who made a very specific requirement of their librarian um, that they must be a university graduate and a linguist not encumbered with marriage Mm. because marriage is too full of domestical impeachments. Distracts them from the books and from book love. Exactly. I mean, it's fair. Celibacy <laughs> is the only way. One of the earlier early librarians said, "No, I'm not yeah, going to do that." That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But yeah, there's, there's Thomas James from 1600 to 1620 threatened to resign unless the celibacy obligation was relaxed. Mm. He got his way. He did. He did. But there's this incredible tradition of you know different librarians and different library rules. As we think of libraries now as very professional and, and having a kind of standard idea of what a library is and how you run it, like a, yes. particularly a big institutional library or a big public library. But those traditions took a long time to, to develop in the modern era. Um, and so for a long time there were very different kind of rules around access, who could come. You know, the British Library for a while had, you know, you could go there even if you were a teenager and then they said, oh, we probably don't really want teenagers in the, <laughs> in the reading room. Um, and obviously that's changed now and it's yeah. much more welcoming. So there's fashions about access, there's mm. fashions around what how books are looked after. And um, some of the, the librarians through history have been absolute heroes yeah, building libraries and, and conserving books, even in times of war. But some librarians have been absolute villains, not just in the sorts of things we talked about before, about you know physical crimes, but yes. actually literally stealing books and, and selling them on the side and that kind of thing. It's disturbing. And some of the... Well, I was surprised that the ones that were apparently, quote, notoriously obnoxious were the 18th century German librarians. <laughs> you were shocked by that. I was, actually. I thought they would have had this kind of secret, you know, deep love for something that is, I guess, ordered. Well, one can create order in a library. And but the visitors are disturbing the order. Oh, good point. That's, that is a very good point. The public are involved. It's like... What are you doing here? This yeah. is my library. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, well, they say that the staff of Germany's public libraries were, quote, ignorant, discourteous, envious and lazy. That's, we should just say as a caveat that that's not having a go at Germans in no, general. No, no, no. Were, there were obnoxious librarians in England and in Spain. And I'm sure. lots of other places. <laughs> yes. All, even in Australia. They're, they're everywhere. They exist. Well, I haven't met any in Australia recently, just to say that. The, the librarians have been very, oh, very good. kind to me. I haven't met bad ones. It was only when I was a kid. Maybe it was because I was a kid that they thought, uh-oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. They had she to, looks to knock like you trouble. into shape first. Yeah. <laughs> I don't look like trouble at all. That's why I was really offended. I was maybe, like, Maybe you used to. 
Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to have to look back at my pictures. Um, it's disturbing. But there are some really important people who've created uh, trends and systems and ways of doing things like uh, Norde, Leibniz and Munchausen. <laughs> Related to Baron Munchausen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, so these are people. And then you say um, one of, I guess, the ultimate librarians was Sir Anthony Panizzi. Mm, who was um, the prime mover behind the British Library um, when it was, well, the British Museum Library, which then split off to become the British Library later on, um, but had that wonderful reading room, the domed yes. reading room, which was this magical bookish place where people like Marx and Virginia Woolf and, and the major um, 19th and 20th century authors went there to, to, to get sources, but also to have a place to write. Exactly. Well, and you say that the dome in the British Library has been a source of inspiration for the State Library of Victoria's mm, Dome, which definitely. I was unaware of. Yes, that's right. And and our dome stands up very well against all of the major library domes, including the, the, the main one in the Library of Congress. Really? So, yeah, we're, we're definitely up there. Wow. And the State Library is one of here. the most visited libraries in the world. Really? Yeah. Mm, maybe that's why it needs renovations. Yeah, I guess because so. Because it seems it to out? be very well used. Mm. Like whenever I go, the um, reading rooms are full. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Partly because it's right next door to a university, yes. which obviously helps. Um, but yeah, it's been through two or three major phases of renovation over the last you know, 15 years or so. And the most recent ones opened up the new entrance and opened up the, I think, Queen's Hall. Um, so yeah, refreshing up some of the heritage spaces as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a spectacularly uh, endowed library. Yes, it is. And I mean, some of the... I guess, secret societies that exist around this. There's one that's very prominent and was set up by um, an avid book collector who filled many houses with them um, and was also poorly treated by his father for buying so many mm. books. I felt I had sympathy. This is Heber. Yes, for the, for the man. He seemed to be, you know... Just genuinely passionate, like <laughs> yeah. to, to probably to a, a relatively extreme. Strong, yeah. level, I would say. <laughs> they were on the floors, apparently. Yeah, in, in multiple houses, yeah. like seven houses, something like that. Yeah, in Yorkshire <laughs> and all the countryside mansions and Europe that he inherited. Yeah. Multiple countries. <laughs> okay, all right. It's a little bit much. I agree. There is a there is a limit. And he was doing this from from a relatively early age. I think yeah, you know, early teens. Very early. He was writing bibliographies and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's there's a there's a real there's there's high levels of bibliophilia, hmm. and then there's this extreme book madness. Yes. There's this wonderful guy called Thomas Frognall Dibden, um, who was an early 19th century collector, and he's the one who coined the whole thing about book madness and bibliomania. Um, and he was a real first-class bibliomaniac. He just lived for finding rare editions and unusual bindings. He was completely incompetent, uh, and, and he's remembered by history as the world's worst bibliographer. Uh, he didn't, underst- <laughs> he, he didn't uh, have many other languages besides English, and yet, oh, and yet right. he catalogued a lot of foreign works and so made all sorts of elementary errors but also he was very taken by surfaces and you know the colored paper and the bindings w- without really kind of thinking too much about the the content so talking about the sort of you know the insults that bibliophiles have to endure he was probably not good press for the for the book loving side no 
Not at all. Um, and there's a really interesting concept that relates to bibliophiles and book lovers. Um, you talk about Tolkien's Middle Earth um, that that references this thing called a matham, mm. which I'd never heard about, um, but it makes so much sense, which is a matham is any portable object for which a hobbit or person <laughs> has no immediate use but is unwilling to throw away. Yeah, so this... this Commonly known as hoarding, yeah. but, but it has a special quality. But that's mm. the point. This thing has a special quality. Yeah, and, and I try and do two things with that. One is to connect libraries with this idea of cabinets of curiosities. And, you know, a lot of libraries had objects as well. And, and there's this idea that not just books, but, but objects tell a story about the past. But also it's an excuse for me to talk about Middle-earth libraries because I am an absolute Middle-earth geek and <gasps> really? uh, a Tolkien guy. And it's funny, that, that section of the book, there's a whole chapter which mostly focuses on libraries in Middle-earth and... People like me and Middle Earth people say, "Oh, so glad you put a chapter in there about Middle Earth." The rest of the Other universe, eyes they say, over. "Why is this in here?" <laughs> I was just really curious and intrigued because I don't read Tolkien. It's just way too detailed and and that chapter is utterly confusing. And, and it goes on, and it's like three quarters of the way through it, and you say it's still going. Yeah. <laughs> I've got but it to had say, to be though, there. It had to be there. Yeah, and you, I think you've had quite a lot of brevity in the stories you tell because there's so many of them. You've had to pack them in, and it uses the narratives to actually advance the story. That's the thing. The the um, the, the units of structure in this book are stories. Mm. Uh, a lot of nonfiction books have that kind of you know relatively arid structure yes. of having said that let me say this there's yeah. none of that in this book it's just it's just the juice no it's not an academic no. tome where you're going to look at something and go oh let's go look at the footnote to that and look it up on my you know and the implications catalog. for modern society yeah it's yeah. this is this is um popular non-fiction in a very non-derogatory way it just goes for it it's it's all it's all killer no filler <laughs> so true. I love it. It's. I'm not joking though. It is really. It's just like you're constantly going from one fascinating thing to another. But it's not like you've chucked it in higgledy piggledy. No, it, it actually does have a very good flow and one, one narrative. Of the yeah. One of the review reviewers early on said it that it follows the author's own strange sense of associative logic. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Which is exactly right. That is exactly right. Is it it really that strange? Well, it's it's certainly idiosyncratic. It is. But, yeah, I don't know. That's good. I think it works. Some people think it works. It does work. Well, you know... I think being an individual, you know, you need to brace, embrace that people yeah. can tell when you're being genuine. And it's your own take yeah. on literature, exactly. Because I, I don't think you could possibly compete or try or want to compete no. with someone who's catalogued the whole history of libraries in an academic sense because it's going to serve an entirely different purpose, Absolutely. have a very different tone. Yeah, um, yeah well, know, around the same time that this came out, there was a, a, a scholar, I think he was Greek, um, who produced a, a, a multi-volume history of world libraries. And I think he was up to something like volume five or volume seven, and that got him up to the Renaissance. Whoa. So not not anything after that. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to write an encyclopedia of libraries, it's a very different thing, whereas this is really a, a collection of interesting stories about libraries. Yes, which you can dip in and out of at your leisure. Yeah, um, depending on the mood. Yeah, depending on how much book love you feel like or how much book crime. 
Yes, exactly. Book lust. Book disasters. Yeah, major book disasters, natural and human caused. Yeah, and insects. Yeah. Oh, we haven't even got to insects and smells. The book odors. Mold. The science of book smells. Um, the fact that you can tell uh, when a certain disease or plague went through mm. a town at what point in history based on the smell of the books. Yeah, because of the different disinfectants and other things that were used. Yeah. yeah. It's th- that's, that, that's amazing. You know, the whole thing of you know, the olfactory side of, of um, bibliography is huge. Um, T. E. Lawrence's books have this strange smell. Yeah, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. It's like, well, what is it? Is it camel? Is it motorcycle fumes? Is it tobacco? Is it? Do we a know? special kind of tobacco? Yeah. yeah. Oh, the special kind. <laughs> <laughs> Inverted commas. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. Book sniffing. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think crosses over to book kissing. Like, yeah, yeah, it is almost on a par. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think if once you've crossed one line, yeah, the next the next one's not that far. It's really yeah, <laughs> downward spiral. It is. <laughs> I'm pleased to say I've not done those things. So yeah, no, either have I. Yeah, yeah, we're clean. It's okay. <laughs> Um, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk about this topic and your great book about it. Um, and no wonder it's been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Prize or Thank award um, because it's an absolute wonder, as it says in the title. And, um, yeah, congratulations on so many successful books that have been happening. The Big Four, uh, this book, The Library, and also Shakespeare's Library, which just came out. And uh, you came on Backstory to talk about that. Yes, it was great fun. Yeah. And yeah, it's all about um, blood sugar and, and eating lots of cake at the kitchen table <laughs> with, with children running around. Yeah. I'm going to read your books with a whole new light now. <laughs> it's going to change things for me. When it loses the kind of flow, it's because I've been interrupted to yeah, change yeah. the video to put oct- octonauts on. Oh, God. That's what it usually is. This, this sounds like a world I'm not yet involved in for a good reason. Yeah. Pepper, yeah. Peppa Pig. Oh, oh. Okay, need to finish, th- wrap up the interview now, Stuart. <laughs> I've got to go and change the DVD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here again and so a pleasure good. to talk to you. And yeah. congratulations on how the show's going and congratulations on your, your Twitter dominance. Oh, thank you. You're so nice. And thank you for coming in on Radiothon. Yes, that's it was a great very fun. special show. What, what, it was such a great vibe that yeah. day. It was amazing. It was. And I have, like, literally the best listeners. Like, not that it's a competition, but... Oh, you do? No, definitely. That's you guys are amazing. To the extent that it's a competition, you're winning. Yeah. <laughs> Which is never a competition here, I've got to say. It's always very, very much... Yeah, collaborative. Co- always. Teamwork, collaborative, good love in general. But, yeah, it, it feels like a family. Totally. Yeah. I've, I always feel like that when I come here. Yeah, it is really good. That's why I have about six bottles of water surrounding me when I said I needed water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Stuart, for coming in. And Pleasure. congratulations again. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.